0: Uh, just a little bit of context to add to that. Um, I used to be a student here as well. Uh, so I am an alumni of the university, which means that this, this church was actually my home for quite a bit. Quite a bit. So there's, being on this pulpit right now in this context is, is, is very very warm for me. Like I have, I have some gratitude right now to be in this space and to especially start this off with the Advent season. And the reason why is because I love, love Christmas. I'm one of those people that can listen to Christmas music all year long. Where's my people at? Yes. And one of the biggest reasons why that it's so meaningful for me is because, is because during this time, that's when all of my family from all over the place came in. And being from Hawaii and being Hawaiian, you have tons and tons of family members. Tons everywhere, right? You have family all over the place. And all of my family used to come. And we used to be in, in my little one-bedroom apartment uh, with my, that, where I lived with my auntie and my mom and then my grandma. Imagine all of us packed in that space. And then my family would come and stay with us in that space. About half the size of this stage right now. It was good times. <laughs> it was really good times. That's what Christmas means for me. Family. And every time we we come to the Advent season, we get to talk about family again. And I get to really dive into it. Because family is so meaningful. And when we talk about genealogies, you know, we're talking about the Advent tree. And you see the Advent tree up right now. And you see Matthew chapter 1 and, and Matthew going through the, the, the list of names that come from this. And it's so meaningful for not just Matthew but the entire Jewish community to actually see this. Because when you see the names on this, you see all of these family members that are showing up, right? In the same way, when I think of all of my family members all throughout, I'm like, yes, those are good people. And then you've got some people in your family tree that you definitely don't want to mention, right? I mean, let's be real. Some of us got family members that we don't want to acknowledge. That we, uh, when we think of their names, right, we, uh, we, we, we have a little bit of a reaction to it. <laughs> uh, be, be real, be real, right? It's okay. I got a few. My daughter was just born. was just born five months ago. I know, it's good times. It really is. But there's a part of me that fears her meeting some of my family. <laughs> 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 there's just some people that I don't want her to meet. I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, man. And Christmas, honestly, brings, brings to light some of that. Like, when we come home, when we go back home, there's certain things that I'm going to have to be mindful of, right? There are certain people that I'm going to have to be mindful of, of introducing her to. Because some people are just extreme drama, that's, that's just the reality. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable feeling, though, to have sometimes when you, when you come across certain people, when you come across certain, certain members of your family who are just toxic, you don't want this around you, right? Especially at a season like this, you don't want toxicity. You don't want, you don't want stress. Even though we've built it to become a a place, a season of consumption too, uh, where we stress over who we're gonna give stuff to, or sometimes you're blending families as well, right? You have that stress involved in everything. That happens all over the place. There's stress everywhere, but you don't want it. And it, and, And when you go around draining people, you don't want that either. You definitely don't want all of this stuff around you. And so the least amount of stress is the best amount of stress, right? But it happens. The reality is you are gonna come across people, you're gonna come come across the, the, the stress of it all, and everyone's gonna be stressed involved too. That's just the truth of it all. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to, uh, comfortable to be around certain people for sure. The uncomfortable thing here though is that the gospel mentions the craziness, the gospel mentions the stress. The gospel mentions sometimes even the toxicity. The gospel tells Jesus' ancestry for all its glory and its shame. The shame as well. Because God's story, like ours, includes glory and shame. Amen? This is hard to wrap our heads around, though, because but consider the way that Matthew tells the story. He, in verse 6, he's extremely provocative. He gets to this point, and he's been naming all of these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right, the normal names that you see and you, you get proud of. You start getting proud of these names, for sure. And as you go down the list, it's like, oh, David, yes. And then you hit this part, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Notice that one right there It's so nice, the rest of it You know, you see all of these names And, you, and you, get, you get kind of proud of these names But then all of a sudden, Uriah's wife Whose mother had been Uriah's wife Hey, why, Matthew, why, you gotta, why do you have to say it like that? Why not just name her Bathsheba, right? We know the name Why you got to name it like that? Uriah's wife Glory and shame, guys Glory and shame it was me- the wording was meant to to strike a chord. It's it's a sort of kind of think back to it. And this is what, what the genealogy does, is, is, is Matthew is building the genealogy. He's, when, he's, when he's telling the story, or, or the names, he's telling stories. When you look at these names, you're able to, to, to piece together all of the different stories. And as a Jewish reader, you're definitely able to do that. Now as a Christian reader, you can do that as well. When you look through the names, you're like, oh yeah, I know that story. When you look through this, like Abraham, yes. Oh yeah, I remember all the stories about Abraham. When you think about Isaac and Jacob, you think of all of these other stories, right? You think of David, David. Yes, I remember all of these stories. The Jewish reader gets, to, gets to, do, to recollect all of these different things. It's the same in our life, too. When we think of certain names, it happens, right? You remember different things. When we were naming our daughter, when we were trying to figure out names for our daughters, we would, my, my, my wife and I were coming up with different names, right? And I would say a name, and she'd be like, oh, I don't want that name. Why? Oh, I just remember this one person. <laughs> I grew up with this one girl or this one boy, right? (laughs) It's real. Like, all of you who have children have gone through this, right? Like, this is a battle. This is a battle that you have. And you kind of go through the different names. like, oh, ah, because she'll come up with with a name, and I'll be like, ah, I don't like that name. Why? It's basic. (laughs) You know what's a basic Hawaiian name? Lani. It means sky or heaven. And I'm just like, ah, man, everybody's name is Lenny. (laughs) This is the truth of it all. You think of names, and you think of them, and then you, you associate the stories along with them. The genealogy does the same thing. Matthew's genealogy is doing exactly that. When you look at these names, you can piece together all of the stories and history that comes with it, and it's extremely rich. It's a rich history. It's really easy to go through it and be like, oh, man, I remember that. I remember that and you start recollecting all of those names so it's so it's so crazy because basically have you guys ever seen the movie up in like five minutes they tell an entire story and you cry at the end of the story right like you 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 are you are moved by five minutes worth of story that's exactly what's happening in Matthew chapter one he is he is moving you through an entire storyline and you feel you feel something you feel something, both pride and when you get to Uriah's wife, you're starting to feel something else. It's something different. At this moment, Matthew is trying to like throw in this weird chord. See, in a, in a, in a chord progression, when you play music, sometimes people like to just, like just throw in this weird chord. And a lot of the bassists, especially when they, when they hit this chord, you get this bass face, right? Mines is always, <laughs> watch Pastor Jason every now and then. <laughs> you feel this, you feel it. And this is what's happening here. You got a base face whenever you go through this. There's a little bit of, of, of provocation that, that, that Matthew was trying to portray. He wants you, he wants to provoke some kind of, some kind of reaction with, with you. You, 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 you experience Something in that very moment. You recall something in that very moment. And he wants you to feel uncomfortable in some way. The reader feels uncomfortable whenever this hits. And if you recall the story, this isn't a rom-com. You know, in Christmas you see all these rom- romantic comedies showing up all over the place, right? <laughs> the holiday. Love Actually, right? You see all of these romantic comedies all over the place. No, this isn't, a, this isn't one of those. It doesn't end well. It's a cringe movie. It's like when I mentioned Tiger King. Some of you some of you are like, ooh, squirming right now. I watched it. There's nothing else to do in a pandemic. So let's recall it. Let's recall the story. And this is what I call the romantic comedy paraphrase version. Second Samuel 11: Boy sees girl. Boy stalks girl. Boy uses his position to coerce girl into sleeping with him. Boy impregnates girl who is already married. Boy gets husband to try to sleep with girl so he doesn't get caught. Husband is so loyal to boy that boy kills husband. It's a screenplay. This is the story that you recollect when you hear the mention of Uriah's wife. This is that exact story, and it's very uncomfortable. It's, 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 it's sore. So why does Matthew tell it like this? I mean, if you were just trying to establish the credibility, some kind of thing that's happening here, if you were trying to do something here, why are you, why are you telling it like this? Because the genealogy of any single person a Jewish person is to establish whether they're Jew or not and Matthew is doing the same thing with Jesus right he's establishing the credibility of Jesus as a Jew but also as a king because he is from the line of David so why is he telling this story like this if you're trying to be credible if you're trying to establish that kind of credibility then why are you telling this part of the story why do you need to include this part of the story you're trying to establish Jesus as a man of God, as a man who is God, so why include this? Why include the toxicity? Why include the sin? Why include this, this negative mark within this? And some people think that it's, it's, it's him kind of just jabbing at David, right? Right? See, in any relationship, you, you, you kind of just throw out words every now and then just because you know that you're going to incite some kind of reaction from your wife or husband. You know. So you throw out some words, right? You know it's going to hit them hard. Some people think that that's what, that's, what, that's what Matthew is doing here, is he's trying to just jab, and he might be jabbing at David. He might be jabbing at the Jewish community, right? But totally, though, totally, provocation for provocation's sake is not the author's style. When he, is, when he is portraying this or, or projecting this, uh, uh, this, this tree, Matthew's tone is not necessarily poking for poking's sake. Rather, it seems like a regal poke. He's establishing credibility of, king, of, of the kingship and the Jewishness of, of Jesus. And he's doing something else. Based on his writing, Matthew is poking to establish Jesus as king. Matthew is also not shy about provoking. This is one theme of the gospel that is really important because Jesus is extremely provocative all throughout, right? You feel it. You feel the provocation that's happening. In the same way, his ancestry is extremely provocative too. The story surrounding Uriah's wife is definitely proof of that. So in other words, Matthew wants you to feel that discomfort. But there's a reason for it. So you are supposed to feel uncomfortable, but there's a reason for it. There's a reason for all of it. And here's one possible reason why. It's not clear that Matthew intended for Bathsheba to share the blame. But what we can say is that the phrase Uriah's wife has implications and indeed points to David as a messianic king and showcases his failure as a messianic king. And since David is a type of Messiah king, and Matthew uses that to give Jesus the credibility of being king, then the story should be a good thing, right? It should be a good thing. So is this a glass half full kind of thing? Are we saying that, that there's a silver lining to this story? Coercing Bathsheba and killing Uriah, is that a good thing? Or is Matthew using the story to, to, uh, to speak to David's imperfection as the Messiah, as a Messiah? Making him, does that make him less credible and therefore makes Jesus less credible? Does David's imperfect kingship make Jesus less credible as the Messiah? The obvious, the obvious answer is no. It's no, but I don't think we should just accept the answer and then that's it. Let's explore why, it might, why that might be the case. You see, it should seem contradictory. There should be a contradiction within this. Why should someone who committed an evil, an incredible evil, still be favored by God? Not just loved, favored. So favored to the point that he, he becomes the line by which God chooses to come from. A hint toward an answer could come from this fact. In the Old Testament, God's people rise, they obey God, and then they fall. They disobey God. All throughout, all throughout in the the entire Tanakh, this happens. God's favored, rise, and then they disobey God. That's just the story of all, all of humanity. That's the reality by which all of us live in. We rise, we obey, we fall, we fail. There is no single story in the entire Tanakh that describes any single character as being the complete version of God's chosen being. Yet every single one of these characters are Messiah figures still Meaning God ordains them to save people. Adam and Eve, first human beings, they fall. Their redemption, they birth the rest of the human race. Abraham fails to have children. Big thing, big thing in those days. His redemption becomes the father of God's chosen people. Jacob steals his brother's blessing, which is a big deal. His redemption Becomes the father of God's chosen nation. Isn't that crazy? The genealogy is full of Messiah figures. Each Messiah figure is indeed just that, though. A figure, but not the Messiah. Because they rise and fall. Over and over in this genealogy, they fail. So with Uriah's wife, Matthew wanted to point out that exact sin, that exact failure of the Jewish community that exact failure of the kingship. He wanted to point that out, because, but because of Matthew's regal tone, it's safe to conclude that Matthew meant for this to be a nod to the very fact that imperfection is just as much a part of Jesus' story as it is the Jewish story. Imperfection. Failure. It's a part of his family tree just as much as it is a part of anybody else's family tree as well. Your origins, your genetic code is built with failure. And that's okay. Because Jesus' genetic code was just as much a part of failure as well. Through this very genealogy, Jesus becomes relevant because Jesus becomes a part of the mess. He is from the mess is born in the mess and therefore becomes the redeemer of of creation's continual mess. Through Jesus, God becomes the most relevant thing that could ever come across. He becomes the complete Messiah because he understands. He has gone through it. He has come from it. Because through Jesus, God becomes one of us. That's what Emmanuel means. God is present in this space with us. He has come from it, come from the dirt alongside us. All the dirt, that, all that grime that has been filled that we have come from, that's a part of it. God is no longer holy, other in that he doesn't understand. He hasn't gone through it himself. God becomes the one who has gone through it, becomes the redeemer of that. God lives in the mess along with us through Jesus. The story of Uriah, Bathsheba, and David showcases that God was born of messiness just as much as we are born into messiness. Like the advent tree, the world is messy. The world is extremely messy. We've seen it over the past two years especially. But like the advent tree the incarnation of God forms a projection of redemptive hope. The Messiah is going to show up. And when we think the world is too far gone for redemption to even exist, we can refer back to the Advent tree and say God came even when David, God's favored, failed. If God can come when God's best fails, then imagine what God can do when the world's worst fails. Would you pray with me? Hey God, we thank you so much for the opportunities that you have given us to worship you in this space. We have within us, God, some of the most interesting and dynamic things within our lives. And you use us still. And you work in us still. You favor us still. We thank you for the Advent tree, God, because we know that the reality of life is built within that genetic code. And we ask that you embed within us your love, your grace, your peace, so that we can project that out into the world around us. We thank you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.